Did you know that people once tried to make George Washington a monarch? From the Founding Fathers era to the present day, the concept of monarchism has lingered in American history. Today we dive into the world of monarchism with Austin, a leader from the United Monarchist Party of America. He runs the website, the forums, everything. He has tons of posts as well. If anyone is very interested, you can check it out after the show. But you're going to want to stay tuned as we discuss the vanishing middle class, crumbling infrastructure, and other pressing issues in America on this episode of Learning with Lowell. Learning with Lowell. Learning with Lowell is not recorded in front of a live studio audience, but we do take fan questions. Stay tuned and stay curious. Churchill's remembered for this quib. Um, democracy is the worst form of government, except for all those other forms that have been tried from time to time. And I thought that'd be fun uh, to start with our conversation today. How do you re- how do you respond to that? If it is do- democracy, the be- the worst form, but the best form that we've come up with, especially given, you know, I'm kind of like leading the witness a little bit, but how do you think about that quote? I mean, I've also heard it said that either in the same breath or in a different quote, uh, Churchill also said that any, um, the, uh, the best argument against democracy is a five minute conversation with the average voter. So he's kind of like, just delegitimating every single form of government ever and kind of almost throwing up his hand and saying, well, we got what we got. So why don't we just go with it? But um, he also quoted, I don't know if it was earlier, but I imagine it was. Um, he he quoted about, uh, it was like a kind of a long one about war. Um, and it, he basically, the long and short of it was that the wars of peoples are going to be way more destructive than the wars of kings. Because uh, he said, when you have mechanization like we have now in the early 20th century when you have mass mobilization when you're taught to see the other side as completely evil and you're not just fighting a war between two kings or a king and his cabinet and another country when battles were retarded by the very nature of it like logistics were old speed was bad you know the weapons sucked uh so yeah he basically said that these democratic wars in the future are going to be way more bloody than anything we ever had in the past because they were small affairs and he was right i i think that i would you know politely and gently disagree with you and we can have a conversation about this the, um i like disagreement for the record i think sometimes people are like are, are we going to get irritated of each other but I, I i think you know based on our preamble conversation i think we can have a media conversation the it's it would seem to me if you look at history that there's uh less wars that are substantive now that things are more democratic than less like um i think the last really big onslaught of things was world war ii and then if you look at it pre that time like most things were like monarchies of some form you know doing the wars um so i would think that based on my reading i would think that uh, democracy results in less bloodshed not more what, what, well, what are you seeing that makes you feel like there's more i guess well there there was more war in the past but also war was an extension of politics um, you know, you had, you had, you know, people fighting and usually those wars in the past were smaller scale affairs. I mean, there were some periods when they took on an, um, usually the largest wars are ones that take on an ideological edge to them. So I'm thinking like the 30 years war, cause that was a religious war. You know, that was a war between the Protestants and the Catholics. And you have France and the German states on one side, you have Austria and Spain on another side. So, I mean, World War One and World War Two are some of the greatest bloodbaths in human history, if not the greatest bloodbaths in human history. The English Civil War 
in the 17th century. That had an ideological edge to it between the roundheads and the cavaliers. And so that was the more blood was spilled in that conflict um, than I think Britain lost in World War One. I. I think that figure is accurate. Um, but yeah, most wars that take on an ideological edge tend to be the worst when it's just a when it's just a war of like between two kingdoms fighting over opposing claims. Because a lot of times in the past, when you have monarchies in the past, it's an inherited job. At any point in this conversation, if you find value in it, please subscribe. It is hugely beneficial and it tells Google and everyone out there that this is content worth watching. Thank you for everyone thus far who has commented, liked, subscribed, and told their friends. And so you're inheriting your authority, you're inheriting your position. And that comes with land, it comes with title, it comes with claims. And so usually when you have enough branches of the family, say you have you know one family and they ruled over this one area, and then over time, the two branches will split. And so eventually there may come a day when there's a succession dispute over this one little territory that they both claim is theirs, but neither controls completely. And so you'll have a war over that. But usually those are smaller scale affairs because it's just between two individuals or two sides of a family. You're not going to have mass mobilization. You're not going to have conscription. Um, you're going to have mostly wars with volunteer soldiers, if not mercenaries. And they're just going to be, you know, fighting each other, duking it out and seeing who can win. Um, you'll have sieges. I mean, if, if there are cities involved that have a, have, are leaning towards one side versus another, and the opposing side obviously has an edge or is winning, um, you're going to have, you're going to have casualties, civilian casualties. I think though, in the past that was seen as you have an opportunity to not to not die and that's to surrender open your gates let us through you know don't stand against us as soon as you as soon as you lock the opposing side out the side that has the edge you automatically make yourself a belligerent and so you're ba that's basically an act of war because you're refusing to let the uh the rightful authority um exert that authority so i mean there's a lot of nuance. I'm sure we'll cover it. Yeah. Well, I think World War One is a good example of the uh, mo like the majority of the people fighting were were like monarchy countries, <clears throat> and there was like you know America, and then I don't know to the extent. I don't think uh, Britain, for instance, was very democratic until like the 70s or 80s or whatever. Like for the longest time, I think you had to be like a noble person to be in the House of Lords or something. So like they were like pseudo democratic, I guess. So the I would consider that probably like the bloodiest war that's ever existed. I think someone showed a picture of like all the leaders and they were like of a family, kind of like we were talking about, like a distant family and all were from like, I think Queen Victoria of England. So it's all England's fault eventually. But that's a very like monarchy war though. It was very in, global. In a way, um, but also at the same time, the march of democracy had already begun by that point. Um, and it had begun in a big way uh, because you have the, the French revolution, of course, we're going to cover that at some point too. Um, but the, the French revolution set in motion, um, these ideas of nationalism because before the King was executed, um, in some circles before he was murdered, uh, you have, you have the idea of he is King of the French and later on his kinsman, um, the son of, 
I think his cousin or grandson of his of Louis XVI's cousin, um, he would also claim that title in the early 1800s. Um, and king of the French instead of king of France. So you're king of the French people, not king of a territory, a kingdom, a patrimony known as France. Um, that idea of your leaders, your kings being your leaders. So it's very much a certain ethnic group trying to attach themselves to the ruling dynasts of each of these countries. Um, in Germany, that was very powerful. In Italy, that was also very powerful, especially after the French Revolution. I mean, a lot of people really admire Napoleon in some of these circles, but a lot of people really hate him. And it's because that some say he usurped the the throne in a way he did even though it had been abolished by that point but he still took up the mantle uh he called himself the revolution on horseback and so he the wars that he fought over the continent in many in many views um in the circles i belong to he spread that poison throughout the entire continent um and very soon after he's defeated and after the concert of vienna is put into place in 1815 uh you have the 1848 revolutions uh so it starts in france and then it just spreads and it, it's almost inconceivable how these things just it, it it's like a ripple effect and it just creates a tsunami it spreads throughout the entire continent and no i don't think any country is untouched by it um and a lot of a lot of the the dynasties had to adjust themselves to that because after napoleon was defeated for the last time and sent to saint helena the concert of vienna basically tried to create an order that was as similar to the one which preceded the french revolution as possible um but none of the countries really stuck to it especially not britain uh they were more involved with growing a maritime empire abroad and they were more interested in trade uh, and they were not interested at all in upholding a quote-unquote reactionary uh, regime throughout the entire continent of uh, of Europe. So by that point, by World War One, democracy has already infiltrated, and it's infiltrated in various different ways in these countries. Britain stopped being a true monarchy probably after the death of uh, Queen Anne. Uh, once George I becomes king, uh, you had the first Hanoverian dynasty, the the um, exile of the Stuart dynasty, uh, the legitimate branch. And when the Hanoverians take over, uh, George I can't speak any English. And he's more interested in Hanover than he is in Britain. So you have the first prime minister, Robert Walpole. He takes over. And from that point on, it's just a slow march towards cabinet government. The monarchy at that point by World War I is very much on the sidelines. They still have authority, but they can't just say what's going to be done. In Germany, Wilhelm has been somewhat sidelined by the generals. Um, even the government at uh, Bismarck, he unified Germany in 1871, uh, but he completely sidelined the king. It's basically, he's dependent on the king for his authority but he's completely banished the king from any kind of government. And he kind of controls the Reichstag in his place. Um, and you have a system where he's incorporated democracy to further legitimate the empire. 
but at the same time that democracy will grow and will undermine his uh the king's descendants um in austria hungary the hungarian revolution put down by the russians um and then you have the ausgleich in 1867 um and that creates the austro-hungarian empire um so it's a dual monarchy but in the austrian half because no ethnic group has has a majority because the parliamentarian elections are by census and so you have to declare a single ethnicity or a single language group um so you're going to either select czech slovak polish hungarian um ruthenian italian austrian so there's deadlock in the austrian half in their parliament and so the emperor franz josef is the only one who can break this deadlock he had authority but you have this tension between the parliaments and the emperors and in hungary he really had a problem because they were they were liberal nationalists and in that time it, that basically meant magyarization so everybody all of the all of the ethnicities because at that time hungary controlled parts of romania all of slovakia uh croatia parts of serbia it basically had lands that belonged to the countries that now surround it and it had a large ethnic minorities but it pursued a policy of magyarization in there uh italy victoria manuel um the House of Sardinia Piedmont comes down from the north and along with Garibaldi and the Count of Cavour basically unifies the entire peninsula at the expense of all the other states which had existed there for centuries um including the pope because the papal states at that point which is now just Vatican City in the middle of Rome once controlled the entirety of central Italy um but yeah there there's a lot that is different not only um not only from when we Americans were just starting out as a country up until World War 1 but if you put George Washington in a room during World War 1 he wouldn't even recognize the place because yeah we he they knew of Prussia which had unified Germany um and they knew of Austria and they knew of all these other smaller german states but after after all of these upheavals so much of what was left is unrecognizable and a lot of these governments stand in tension with with the kings and the emperors um and some of them some of the kings hardly have any authority left um once world war 1 rolls around in britain especially you're well on your way to cabinet government you're well on your way to the house of commons having the supreme authority um like they do now mm That's I a very that, rambly way of me no. answering your question and I covered a lot of ground. Yeah, yeah, no, uh, well, I'm taking notes. The so I think that this idea of the influence of democracy is there at pre-World War 1. It's it's kind of like not infecting, you know, per se, uh, depending if you like it or not, but the influence is there. I think my thought is it was there, but it was like a, a part of the pie. If you read um like Oh, where is it? If you read Richard Evans like the Third Reich at War like the, that series. They talk about how um there's like multiple different parties like you said a minute ago uh some based on ethnicity some not um going on. And I think democracy like those types of leanings was like one part of the pie of nations, you know, like there's like America had communists, fascists, like all these different people uh living inside of it. And I I don't think democracy as it I think the moment democracy went from being a part of the party to being like the main party uh 
was post World War II. I was reading that. Um, I was reading that a lot of the democracies that we think of as democracies really only came out of, like, only came after like Pax Romana, after like the fifties, when you know, like, nothing else was around besides us. So people were like, hey, you know, uh, we should really align, make it look like we're like the Americans. They seem to like that type of stuff, so that we can get uh, trade benefits and stuff like that. Um, so I think I, I, I agree with your principle that in what you were saying and what you were outlining that it was starting to to penetrate. I think the that there was nothing that says that it becomes as dominant as it is today, pre World War One and World War Two. I think World War One and World War Two, with America getting so big, people started to kind of like emulate that, and that's when democracy really became what it is today in terms of like vast majority of uh, governments trying to like kind of align that way. Um, but I see what you're saying. Like, I think that there was massive influence before then, but I don't think they were dominant yet. But that doesn't mean they weren't like influencing the way people were going. Yeah, and I mean, when World War One started, it was not an ideological conflict. It would take that on. Um, perhaps there were some ideological views when it first started, but the the reasons behind the war were not. Uh, you know, it, the heir to the Austro-Hungarian Empire had been assassinated in his own territory by by a terrorist group that was in large part, if not supported by, but definitely working hand in hand with various aspects of the Serbian foreign ministry or interior ministry. I forget which one. Um, and it's just a domino effect of all these alliances trying to declare war on each other. I mean, Wilhelm Kaiser Wilhelm of Germany had met with Tsar Nicholas of Russia uh, and they had agreed on a treaty uh, of alliance to try to neuter the Russian-French alliance. Um, not that Russia would cut its alliance with France. It's not. It's not like, oh, well, you can't be their friend anymore because now you're my friend. It had nothing to do with that. It's just trying to create mutual relationships so that way, in the event of some war, you're not. You're not like fighting. On, on either side it's basically a war of uh, a treaty of neutrality it's like well i'm going to i'm gonna you know be an ally of you and we're gonna work together on various things nicholas nicholas the second uh his his ministers told him to basically ignore it said just pretend like it never happened so you would think oh the czar the almighty emperor of russia um no, I mean even him. He was influenced by ministers of the of the Duma, which he had actually just created, um, and in in Germany, very much the same. I mean, you have you have the the Chancellor, who's a huge influence. You have members of the Reichstag that are a huge influence, and especially you have the military. Uh, by the end of the First World War, Hindenburg and Ludendorff were the ones calling the shots, uh, not not Wilhelm. Uh, yeah, Wilhelm was very much kind of i don't know if he was ever truly in control of these things um but by this point i mean you have the kind of i don't know what it, i don't know what the word is not centripetal force but like it's the momentum of democracy is already so strong because if it had not been you wouldn't have these kings like a century before implementing these institutions that had never existed before you know the 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 push towards it is so 
is so great. You can't resist it. It's like trying to hold back an irresistible tide. Like you, you won't be able to do it or unless you try to co-opt it and use its energy in a different way. So it has a different outlet. Um, but most of these problems arise from the idea that these democratic principles, these parliamentarian institutions are going to stand in opposition. They're not going to be useful for the facilitation of government. Um, see, in the past, the kings and emperors were, they possessed the government. That was a, one of the things that they inherited. It's not just the crown and the title and the lands and the countries. It's they, they are the government. Charles I says, I, I possess I possess the government. Louis the Louis the Fourteenth of France said, "L'état moi." I am the state. Um, you know, in a big way, they are the that ultimate authority. That doesn't mean they exercise it in how we would see it in a dictatorial way. Like these people are not Hitler and Stalin and Mao. These people are just they're basically the Windsors that you're talking about in Britain now. They're basically like that. They're country folk. They're a family. They're not savage dictators that have a vendetta against any one person. They just have a whole lot of inherited power. But they think did the, not have that anymore. Yeah, I think that, uh, well, it's the idea of like appointment versus some form of election, I think is when it comes to like the people around the king. As a, as, I'm trying to like dichotomize this in a little so we can like micro talk about these things. Mm. Um, in America, we had I forget the t the term for it, but when a president came in, there was like a like a like the top of thirty percent of American government had to get replaced. It was all appointment based, which had a lot of corruption in it because you they would uh the first like year of a, per a president's job was basically you know people bothering them, like hey can I have this job can I have this job because all money like they they get get a job it's influence they would sell these things to people for political favors and stuff like that so I think that that, that seems to be makes me feel like if uh positions where there's a lot of appointments have a lot of potential for misuse versus like some type of election or some type of a uh, system where the checks and balance seems like there would be less of abuse happening and i'm using you know the american you know like grant up to like teddy roosevelt where they had like a lot of this appointments to like less so and now i think there's only there's only like 250 there's not that many appointments that the like the president <clears throat> really works with anymore hmm. which so which also is like almost like no corruption i guess um so hmm. that, that seems like a good thing I mean, it, it depends on it depends on this uh, the philosophy, the underlying principles surrounding these various positions. Like the people who occupy these positions of of authority and power, what what drives them? What is their ultimate aim? Like, what? How do they see their own position? Um, you know, it, it's it's easy it's easy to pick on kings because you know a lot of people hate privilege a lot of people think like oh god there goes that that ceo and his crappy son you know they they just they think of that they think of the caricature but back way back when um and i mean not even that far back uh it's very into recent history a lot of these individuals a lot of these families saw their role in, an, in a very personal way um it their families had been there for centuries. They had their own view of themselves. They said, you know, we don't, we don't live for our own sake. You know, we don't belong just to us. 
you know, we have other people that we have to care for. Um, and religion, the church, the idea of faith, um, the idea that kings are not little gods that rule on earth just off of their own power. Um, their authority very much is mediated uh, by the religious authorities. Uh, they, if you if you have a, a kingdom where there is a coronation, especially like in Britain, we just saw, and I actually had, I was there in London just this past May um, for specifically for that event. Um, these these people have an extremely humbling beginning uh, when they take on this role, you know, and all of these symbols and regalia, they're, they're heavy. They're physically heavy. The crown is made of solid gold. If you've ever picked up lead before, it's very similar to that kind of weight, you know, it's, and it's on your head. You're holding solid gold objects. In various cases, you have this huge robe made of velvet lined with fur. Uh, you know, it looks amazing on the outside, but these things also have a symbolism all their own. Um, so, these people didn't didn't think that they could do whatever they wanted. Um, in many ways, they knew they couldn't do whatever they wanted. Uh, but that that's their underlying view of their own of their own position, their own existence. In in our system, may the best man win. You know, it's it's a fight. It's a fight from the very beginning. And I mean, I don't think I've ever seen or had two years of my life that was free of people on television talking about an election because it's it, it it never ends eventually in the future i'm convinced it's just gonna be one continuous election thing there's not going to be any break you're just going to talk about the next presidential election from the very time the next the current one's inaugurated um you know it's rife with money because money buys position money buys influence um it's it has a lot to do with controlling public opinion. You know, how can you twist this in a way that makes my opponent look bad and me look good? Um, it, uh, public opinion can be controlled. Public opinion can be curtailed. And I think anybody with, with two eyes has seen that um, in recent years. Uh, it, it's just the way our system works. There's no inherent protections in it. Uh, when you inherit something, you automatically block off anybody from having any kind of claim to that because you can't. It follows in a bloodline. It follows in a family. Maybe two branches of the family can vie for it, but you can't just say, oh, I'm king now because you have no legitimacy. Who's going to believe you? So I don't know if that answers your question or not, but... Uh well, I think in modern politics, there are people who be, become donors, and uh, then be, they may get they get ambassador jobs or something. I think we've seen that a lot, where it's like there's a little tit for tat. So there's still some weird stuff going on. I think the to me it seems like less corruption is going on in these types of systems. Um, but then I guess you have like some type of bureaucracy. I think uh, I was listening to an interview with like Vladimir Putin, where he said like it's not so much the president you have to worry about; it's like the millions of bureaucrats underneath them that exercise the real will of America. Yeah, and then in, in what you were saying just now, there's this uh, controlling of people. How would you like? You're you're still controlling people one way or another, whether it's a monarchy or democracy or what have you. Um, 
what's to stop people like a different branch from just saying like, hey guys i have the better claim like that's that's like so rife with history right like there's there's so many examples of like a younger brother or sister or what have you coming in and just like using the masses to do their own thing um it seems to me like the the systems that are the united states like built into us allows people to run if they think they have a better claim and then people can just vote them in and it goes up uh, the alternative system like the english civil war or any other you know dispute about these things usually involves like a lot of death and so far like when it comes to like the handing off of power in america there's really not that you know much death i don't think there's much death during elections and stuff which is kind of nice and that kind of like leads to a larger <clears throat> question we probably should be asking is like what what outcomes do we want for people and then you know what systems are best to get that there um i think what you're saying is that um there's simplicity in monarchy and how monarchies can be run uh when, when it comes to representing um the interest of the country like kind of like a sovereign it sounds like it's like a very sovereign type sense uh but there's, there's these political uh images from like the 1800s where the sovereign was like each individual person of their country so they made it up of that and then i think there's uh some people that say that you start as a sovereign and then it slowly kind of becomes more democratic over time and then i think the uh what was his name i don't uh Karl marx says that everything becomes a socialist and then everything becomes a communist after that like that's like the continuation um so how do you see that the what is your view uh is there a natural progression of government like in this way do things start as sovereign they still become you know Karl marxian like eventually communist or do you think that it could be anything i think that's like a little bit of like what we're touching on here it's like i don't think there's anything that says that democracy had to be the winning person you know post 50s it just happened to be that way because the government I mean, the U.S. is like in a very beautiful spot when it comes to land. Like we have two giant moats on our, on our side and uh, small uh, people around us so we can do whatever we want. Um, so like I think democracy was a part of the play. Uh, it seems that if there's less appointments, you have less corruption. So I'm, I'm curious, like what? There's like a multi-part question here, but the first one is. What do you see the cycle of government? Is there a cycle? Could it really go anywhere? Um, and then two. Um, what benefits will people have over the current like if we were just looking at america like if we were monarchists versus not like how do you think america would look well in terms of the cycle of government i mean that idea goes all the way back to polybius um an ancient greek and he you know i might butcher i might butcher this term but the anachoclos uh the going around in a great circle um the uh the idea of monarchy to aristocracy to democracy back to monarchy again um you know it's it's very much like you'll hear people online talk about you know strong men make good times good times make weak men blah 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 it's that it's that whole thing but that's just a that's an idea that's very old um in terms of a cycle like a predestined uh, a direction for for government I don't think it was it was destined always uh, to lead down the path it has, and we were not always destined to arrive in the place we are now. Um, I think it's just a lot of different circumstances. Uh, that I, that's why I'm a monarchist today. If I believed that it was the destiny of humankind, uh, mm -hmm. like in my soul, if I believed it, that like. It's the destiny for all of us to just go down the path of democracy and republics. Rah, rah, let's go. I wouldn't be, we wouldn't be having this interview now. Um, I think also 
to to answer your question about the about the corruption and about the positions in the past there were not as many political appointees uh, government was a lot smaller not in necessarily a libertarian sense but the fact that you didn't need a lot of people to to run these things because government was not responsible for all of the things we expect it to be responsible for now or that a lot of the people think that it should be responsible for um you have you have government apparatus that maybe employ hundreds thousands maybe 10,000 people nowadays we're talking about hundreds of thousands if not millions so there's a, a complete difference in that um there are fewer positions uh and i think that i think that we've gotten used to the idea that government is responsible for uh for you know all of all of the different aspects of our life like making sure it runs properly i think that we have some sometimes like given away the responsibility for a civil society to the government like we are focused on our lives we're focused on our comforts we're focused on just getting through the day just doing our jobs just going home and making sure we have enough food on the table or whatever and we've given government the responsibility for making sure that everything else runs properly like we've we've sacrificed our civil responsibility as people of a part of a community a much larger community um and i don't know why that is uh we've we've continuously become along with democracy we become more atomized we become more individualized even in our own homes we don't see ourselves or not that i can imagine we don't see ourselves as members necessarily of a of a family anymore or at least there's people i know who are families that don't appear to act like families uh they very much almost seem like people who just live in the same house um so i think that we don't cohere very well um neighborliness is not is not there anymore um the the whole idea that i live in i live in this town you know i i am surrounded by all of these people um we just don't have that anymore in fact it seems like a lot of people are always looking for the next best thing um people complain about their their situation and like god i don't want to live here i want to move somewhere else and then they move to that place they wanted and realize it's not all they're cracked all it's cracked up to be and then they move somewhere else where they think they'll be happier people are constantly these days chasing after almost like a ghost they're like chasing after the good life and no matter where they rest their head at night it seems like they're they never get there because they're looking for something outside of themselves when the problem is internal to all of us um we're not happy with ourselves we don't have internal satisfaction we don't have a foundation we've all become deracinated we're all rootless everything's hanging in the balance you know even even globally speaking i mean you're talking about america or a very solid position i mean yeah we were in a solid position until it seems very recently um it seems like the solid position turned out to be smoke and mirrors um a lot of countries are 
seeming to not only be a pulling away from us, but they're also standing in stark opposition to us. Um, you know, we're, we're seeing that in recent years, you know, not, I'm not about to blame any one official of the U S government. Um, I'm not going to say it was Trump's fault or it was Obama's fault or it was Biden's fault or it was Bush's fault. I think that's too simplistic. I think, again, that's just kicking the responsibility onto someone else. Um, but the fact is that a lot of these conflicts in the world, a lot of these, not if not political and diplomatic conflicts, mil military conflicts, um, they're, they're seeming to come out of nowhere, which makes me wonder, was the was the system that we had actually strong or was it just there because there was not yet an alternative to it? Um, and the alternative kind of makes me slightly nervous because the countries that are providing the alternative are not necessarily countries that I would necessarily enjoy living in. Um, a communist country like China uh, and the scary part about communist China is they've very much taken on the mantle of the old celestial empire, the old middle kingdom, all of the lands they claim are the lands that belonged to the Qing dynasty, the last great dynasty of China. And that includes Taiwan. So hmm. I, I don't know. Um, it seems like a very scary world. Um, you also mentioned military side, our view of war, is not our ancestors view of war it was i don't want to try to say it was acceptable but in a way it was it was normal it was something that just was part of human nature um they didn't seek it out but if it came down to it like if the justification for it was there that's also incorporated into religious philosophy a lot of churchmen a lot of scholars a lot of people in the scholastic tradition back in those days argued about what makes a just war um so you can't just say i don't like you i'm going and i'm taking your stuff just because i want it um that would not have been a just war uh and you would probably face a lot of internal opposition for that um we're also not a very military centered society a lot of people these days seem to not be very happy or very, I don't know, interested in law enforcement or in the military or in anything that has to do with force of arms. They see it, at least the most vocal people, they see it as a relic of a bygone era. They see it as a relic of a very patriarchal, masculine, vicious, horrible past. Um, the past wasn't necessarily just vicious and horrible um it was patriarchal we live in a in a fatherly society i don't have my mother's maiden name i have my father's last name even the idea of a maiden name is from when before your mom was married you know that's that's what that word the term means so i mean it's just the civilization we have um i think a lot of people are trying these days to move against it because they just I don't even know their justification for it. I feel like some of them have a justification, but it never seems to be coherent enough for me to really get a handle on it. Because if I 
could have like an actual list of what they believed and why completely, like it was something they all said, then maybe I'd be able to refute it easier. But it seems like every single time you say something or you try to, you know, go up against this, it, they keep tacking in a way that like makes them change their position every single time. So, and you brought up marks. And so I'm, again, I, that's kind of goes hand in hand with that. Yeah. The, well, I, I do see what you're saying that there's like a disintegration of a lot of beliefs and systems in America that for the longest time were very uh, useful. Uh, you know, victory gardens were huge in World War II and making people not only bring together, but have food even in these suburban areas. Uh, suburb, sur suburbia only exists as a way of, it's like a, a factory for the workers to be a factory at a factory. Like there, it's just a system for people to like go to a factory and they weren't really developed for community means. Um, so I, I see your point, I think of like the breakdown of, of, you know, you know, family, uh, social, especially with uh, COVID. I, I know a lot of people in, in school, outside, outside of school, saying kids who are coming up there, they don't understand socialization, socialization as much as they, as younger generations were. And they, they kind of put the finger on uh, COVID, like breaking those bonds. So communities, I see that. I see that, um, you know, be neighborly. I, I've lived in many different places and I, you know, I couldn't tell you my neighbors' names. I try to avoid them as much as I can because, uh, you know, their problems come to my problems and not necessarily want to be my problem, which not isn't a good thing, you know, like a cup of sugar and that type of thing. Um, but I, I wonder to, to what extent it's just like kind of a natural phenomenon. I don't know how you would um, go about uh, reversing it. And at the same time, you mentioned there was less political appointments in the past, you know, population, etc. But the population now is ma quite massive and probably it might be like the biggest, like I think you're about my age. Millennials might be the largest generation that will ever exist in the history of mankind based on the fact that the the generations after us are much smaller like we might mm -hmm. I, I make this joke with my friends like we might be the greatest generation we can, we can take that title because uh we're the, <laughs> we're the greatest in size we're, we're thick um so i do wonder that you know i do think a community is great how can there's a uh, there's groups that are trying to restructure towns so that there's every you know suburb i don't remember the term that they use has like these parks and gardens so that people can come together you know, like you, you drive down a neighborhood, there's really no incentive to talk to people. Look mm -hmm. at an Apple campus. Look at like, like they designed it so that you had to talk to each other because that brought out the best in them. Mm -hmm. So like there's like structural things that keep people divided. You know, there's thoughts, you know, news and stuff. If you if your news, if the news tells you like everyone who does agree with you. Is an evil person, you're not going to want to like share sugar with them, you know, uh, so. I feel like the like how how we house ourselves, how we structure our societies, just on a physical level as well as ideologically. I don't think it allows us <clears> to be connected as much as we used to be. Um, I don't know how to go against that. I don't know how to unwind that clock. How do you build back connections when it feels good not to have those connections? When it feels good to yell at people? When it, it feels good to say, um, you know, Austin, you believe X, Y, and Z. You're an evil person. Versus like, hey, Austin, you're you're American like like me. You have different opinions. Let's sit down and have a beer and talk about it, or yeah. or tea. I like tea personally, but um, I don't know how you would do that institutionally on a large scale. I think, like I like I mentioned, I think if you rebuilt some towns in different ways, but that's like mm. trillions of dollars. Uh, you could like encourage people. I don't know. I don't, I don't know how to get back what you're talking about because I think people don't see the value of it anymore. Even as people feel lonely and are suffering from mental illness. And suicide and all these other things are, are horribly happening. I don't think you know people are reaching out to each other for help. Well, I think that 
I think that you're correct with the whole structure thing. I cover that in my website. Um, and a lot of people have the idea that you have to have a grand design, a grand plan, these huge initiatives uh, that cost so much money. I mean, I live in Pennsylvania. PennDOT is famous for sucking when it comes to doing any kind of repair on local infrastructure or any infrastructure in Pennsylvania. Um, they they do a terrible job and it seems to cost a lot of money. I would, I kind of feel like the cost of things, um, infrastructure initiatives, urban design, I feel like a lot of our price tags are inflated. And I feel like it's inflated, not necessarily because our currency is so devalued, but I think it's because that so many people have their fingers in the pie. Um, you know, I, corruption, corruption is probably harder to sniff out when there's a million people versus if there's like a hundred people. So I feel like when it, when there's a smaller population and there's these disruptions, you'll see it easier versus if you can easily hide it behind all this red tape, all of these regulations, all of these organizations that need to be involved or want to be involved, or they, you know, they'd say, oh, well, you can't build this thing or renovate this thing or do this if X, Y, and Z are not involved. Like those departments need to be involved. They have to hire their own contractors. They have to bring in specialists. They have to bring in consultants. You have to wait at least five to 10 months to get approval for this stuff because the administrative backlog or whatever, a lot of this stuff is inflated. A lot of the stuff is so artificial. Uh, road repairs that should take no more than a week end up taking months, years at a time. Uh, we, we just don't do things well in this country. That is just a fact. Um, I think in terms of how we can cohere better. Again, you don't need a grand plan. I think a lot of people these days, um, so I, this is actually relevant. I went to school for environmental science. If you would believe it, I did not go to school for history. I probably should have, I would have liked it more. Um, but I went to school for environmental science and one of the topics I covered there uh, was actually my final presentation for a seminar uh, course. And I had to basically craft an entire presentation. Um, urban design featured heavily in that. And it was for reasons of conservation, you know, just caring about our environment. You know, I would rather have healthy trees, healthy wildlife, not just have them, you know, be rifling through plastic or be choked by the stuff we just throw in our ocean. So like there's a difference between conservation and a, I guess people would call it the green movement or the environmentalist movement, like the, the environmentalists that are political versus the conservation that is more like, I love a beautiful landscape and I would hate to see it ruined by just our negligence. So those are two separate things. I came at it from the negligent part and I think that you can convince or at least bring on side a lot of those political environmentalist movements just if you talk to them about common sense, common sense things. I mean, maybe a lot of them don't think in those terms, but if you say 
you don't like cars because they admit this. I don't mind if people have cars. People are always going to have cars. A way to incentivize them not using it is to allow people to have access to things where they don't have to use a car. If you had the option, you personally, of going to a store and one store was like a corner store, a small mom and pop store. So you're here, you're already bringing in the small business people, the little town people, the people who feel left behind. Would you rather go to that? You already know their name. They maybe live above their store or maybe they live right next to you and they just own the store. Or would you rather go to the Costco that's 10 miles away that you couldn't get there by walking? You know, what would you rather do? And if you do buy at Costco, yeah, you maybe get more bang for your buck, but how much stuff do you actually throw away? How much do you actively use? And does the current system we have now of endless supply and endless demand, does it incentivize us being more wasteful? And I think it does. Um, mm. you, can't, you can't turn a Costco into anything else but a Costco. A Best Buy can't be anything else but a Best Buy. Um, you know, these glass shards that poke up out of our inner cities, they cannot be anything else but what they are. It's a waste when they, when their purpose dies, you know, think about Blockbuster. They died all gone. They're all gone. Maybe a few are left and mm -hmm. they are relics of a, of There's a bygone era. Exactly. All the others were plowed under all of that construction waste the energy and the material that went into building those buildings that has now been landfilled you, you can't reuse you can't reuse a lot of that stuff i mean maybe you can remelt the steel but can't reuse the concrete you can't reuse a lot of that stuff because what we do we don't disassemble buildings in a way that allows for that stuff to be used again or even the structure to be used again a corner store can be made into something else you know a building that is not only architecturally coherent, but also fulfills a function that is housed in a structure that the structure itself is like a, a blank canvas. It's a, it's a piece of wood that has not been carved yet. And as soon as that carving or that canvas, you want to change the picture. It's almost like you press a button and it poofs back into the original thing again, and you could remake it and remold it. But what we have now is just endless waste, endless things that we never use. Um, and I think a lot more people would rather, just for their own sake, um, they would rather have know that they would use everything that they buy, that they're not wasting money. Um, go down the street and shop at the corner versus have to get in your car and drive 10 miles. So that's just the way yeah. I see it. No, I hear what you're saying. The and and more money. Uh, I think like if you can put money in your local economy, there's like someone did like an equation on this. It's like massively good for schools and hospitals and everything in your local, even your your road and your infrastructure. But but to answer your question, would I go to a local mom and pop store versus a larger store? I'd go to whichever one. I could tell them online what I wanted, and they'd put it in my car, and then I didn't have to. <laughs> so then I didn't have to like walk through and have people cough on me. I like that that feature of of COVID. When uh, we started, like, you could just drive up and they throw it in your car. I don't like how much plastic Costco's and all these other places use. I, you mm -hmm. know, I feel like we should have, like, a bin in your trunk. And they should just take the things and put it in the bin. And, like, have it organized. Mm -hmm. 
because like everything has so much plastic in it. I, I, I or um, if they're gonna have plastic, have it like biodegrade. Like the the single use plastics we have are just terrible. Like you're saying, it just breaks down. Uh, we we use plastic one time, but it's designed for a lifetime. Like just hmm. terrible engineering on that stuff. Um, but I think I would as long as long as like I could just get it put in my car because I already know what I want. Like I already hmm. know the deals and stuff on it. I like to coupon. So like uh, I'm from the Midwest, so we, we like to get a good deal on these things. But I do see your point uh, with many services like pharmacies. I, I like uh, a smaller mom and pop type situation. Um, I like places that are like tactile like that, where if you have a question, it you can get it answered. I've never used um, like Amazon's pharmacy, for instance. I'm sure they have great customer service, though. But one thing I, I you know, a local mom and pop, like especially pharmacy or something like that, it's always just really nice. Um, but there's like something to be said. I'm kind of going against my own thought now, uh, but I do like the idea of like things just being put in my car and saving the time, and then like doing other things. I, I wonder to the extent like uh, cities and towns, like services like that will be abstracted away in the way that I'm talking about, and then more experiential things like uh, like skate parks, um, you know, whatever type services that the town is known for will be like the main thing, you know, like a uh, like in person live uh, experiences versus like going to see a movie, for instance, would be like the analogy. Yeah. Um, I could see like towns, like every town's like becomes known for something, I guess. Mm. Um, but they are, I mean, towns in general in the United States are being kind of like gutted out. If you drive through like Iowa, for instance, which I have done, it is stark to see like the high watermark was like 57 and now like it is so barren and it's so sad and you see like three or four people in them. But yeah, I do wonder what, uh, I guess just like going in lockstep what do you think would be the way to rebuild communities? And I'm talking like community of like maybe like towns of 10,000. I think Detroit's like a good, like I'm not like the like contention, but Detroit's doing a great job at like mm-hmm. reclaiming abandoned houses and, and, and bringing back a more community feel. Like I, I've been reading a lot about what Detroit's doing. And I think a lot of towns, I mean, city cities could use their, their systems, but I think towns are like a smaller concept. Um, okay. How would, how would you bring people more connected? How would you, promote uh family values like you've talked about um you know caring about your neighbors and that type of thing well i mean you have to on a basic level you have to try to root people in place again yeah not not like chain them to the floor but i mean make them feel like they have a stake in where they live um and i think that the way to do that is to incentivize repairing and renovating old construction versus making it cheaper to build new, um, because if you if you can reclaim old buildings, not only are many of them extremely beautiful, but a lot of them are traditional craftsmanship. You know, it, there's not a second thing in this world that looks exactly like a feature you might have in that building. It's a one one of a kind thing. Someone poured you know their sweat, their time, and their blood potentially if they slam their hand with something, you know, into making that, uh, you can't get that again. Um, and I, I think that we should be more willing to restore old buildings that are beautiful and that identify where you're at. Cause a lot of, a lot of buildings that are older, they, they, a lot of people say they look exactly the same. No, they don't. You can look at a city image of Germany, of China, of the United States, of Spain, and of Britain. If you look at a city center, would you be able to tell which one you're in? No, because they all got skyscrapers in them now. But look at 
old cities. You can tell the difference between if you're in Russia or Poland or Germany or Spain, they have their own vernacular. They have their own different style. Um, and that is important. Also, I think that you were talking about ordering stuff online, making it easier, the ease of access to things, the convenience of it. Um, I feel like if, if it's not put to an end, uh, you know, like it, I doubt it would be put to an end. Like there would be a moratorium on it. I feel like it's more going to be a social reaction. Um, because I feel like with all that convenience, people crave interaction, but the younger generations, I guess either they have anxiety about it or they don't really desire it as much, or maybe they have different outlets for it. Um, I feel like as the younger generations are born, a lot more of them might have reactions against what we've grown accustomed to because we have a lot of chronic illness in this country. We have a lot of people who are obese, a lot of people who waste away on couches, and that will just be exacerbated by the endless convenience and the ordering from home and not interacting. I feel like maybe the younger generations might have a visceral reaction against that. They might be like, like all younger kids, they want to not be like their parents. They want to not be like those old people that they're surrounded by that are just not up to their standards. I feel like they may be like, they just sit around all day. They don't do anything. Like it might become fashionable again to like, oh, let's go out to the store and shop like people used to do. Like I can, I can hear a younger child like 50 years from now being like, did you hear they just went to the store? Like it's some crazy thing. Meanwhile, me, I went to the store when I was younger and we actually did it for a purpose. Um, so if it comes back as a fad, maybe that. But I think also people like to just shop. People like to window shop. People like to walk around and browse. I mean, the King of Prussia Mall is not too far from where I live about maybe half an hour, 40 minutes. And several times this year, I, I've just gone there with my friends just to walk around, just to shop. And I mean, that's not necessarily small town, you know, mom and pop stuff, but it is kind of a modern version of a marketplace, like the hub of the economic livelihood, like the heartbeat of it, where people go and you would sell things, you would talk to the suppliers and all that stuff. Um, so if it's not instituted, maybe it'll be something that just comes back in a different way um, and grows organically. I'm very convinced that this stuff cannot just be revived wholesale. And that's another thing that I I think I bring up in my about my movement is that I can't, I, I'm not, I might be quote unquote a reactor I might be somebody who has like views that are very old fashioned about different uh, politics or economics or social uh, social organizations, but I'm not stupid. I'm not ignorant of the fact that you can't implement it from above. You can't just pressure people to do something. You can't just like place artificially something that no one will use or no one will, you know, incorporate into their lives. I think if you do anything, it has to be gradual. It has to be just small bits and pieces here and there. Um, so in a way, to answer your question, I don't think that there is a direct way to salvage this mm. stuff, but there's a way to kind of incentivize looking back 
like you always you always want to look back you want to feel like oh i can i may not have lived that life that my great grandfather lived but i can understand you know the world he lived in i can understand where he came from and it's so cool that i live in in the same town where he grew up and i'm looking at a tree that he saw when it was just being planted or whatever like i feel like people find that fascinating i think that's why so many people go on like genealogical websites or take dna tests because people just are crazy about where i come from you know what is my past and i think a lot of people shy away from history because they see it as like kind of a dry subject something that's not really interesting maybe it's just me but when i was growing up i loved i loved history i love it to this day i find it so fascinating that i can not only notice parallels but like i can read primary sources i can like read what a person actually wrote and i'm like wow that's actually i've heard someone today say this or at least an updated version of this and he's saying that like 300 years ago so that to me it's like the more things change the more they stay the same like people ultimately aren't very different our our circumstances are different our environment is different um and so i i feel like if you give people an opportunity they'll they'll grab on to it they'll they'll hold on a little bit tighter than we might give them credit for yeah well on your your point of um uh, convenience i think that it's like what people use use the convenience for um you know, if, if people, if you take, if they reclaim so much of their time and they waste it watching TV, which is a really easy thing to do. It's like, like there's, uh, I've been writing, I started out as a blog post because I was just like, oh, I've, I've been reading a lot about like dopamine and uh, being bored and like people's like tolerance and like their ability to achieve and stuff like that. Um, which is, if, if you, uh, says anyone listening, in, if you find in your week a feeling or an actuality that you have not achieved that much, look how many easy dopamine hits are in your in your schedule how many you know TikToks, uh texting or, or uh, on social media where you're not you're not engaged you're just consuming that do that test and then uh see if it's above 95 percent. you didn't achieve shit that week i guarantee it like just like or you you, you struggled really hard but mm -hmm. i do think that to your point i think people we've created an umbrella where ease exists and so people were raised up in this like wow all this stuff all this stuff all this stuff and I think that to your point, people are now starting to, I think I, a lot, a lot of what I'm seeing, but then again, I could be in like a bubble here, but I'm seeing people do more outside stuff because they realize I, I went all day watching YouTube. I didn't learn a dang thing. What is watch a Mr. Beast video and tell me what you learned from it. I don't like, it's okay. I could tell you kind of what happened, but I get bored with it really easy. Um, versus outside, there's so much more that you can touch. There's so much more you can feel. Uh, in my opinion, and I think a lot of people are like moving in that way. So I think the convenience created an umbrella for people to actualize within, and a lot of people unfortunately got like that dopamine addiction. And uh, thankfully, a lot of them are starting to migrate off to this like more actualized world where they can touch and see things. And I think those people are 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 doing much better. And that's not to say like, hey, if you found this video, if you saw this interview when you're cycling through, uh, we're talking about some really interesting stuff that impacts the real world. Uh, use that and go, you know, out to the world. Like you went to London. It's not like you sit in a room, read a book, and leave it there. You're, 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 you're taking. And I wouldn't say reading is the same thing as like watching a like a mindless video. Like reading is much more engaged. It's almost like meditative. 
in terms of your like the focus on it um and then you take that and you move it to the real world so i i do wonder to the extent that the transition's already happening where people have seen the last 20 years of convenience and like i don't know like avarice or whatever like the like not any meaning coming from the fact that they have more time when i was in college it's like a funny story when i was in college the i would help people with time management and people would always sit down but i have the best time management i get so much done so much done i was like i grab a handful of crayons i drop it on the table and i'd say let's draw your week and they did not like to a t no one has great time management but uh people in college people with 4.0s they were spending so much time doing stupid shit by by the end of the conversation uh they had like massive monitors like 20 30 hours of their week now freed up and i think half of them just started watching you know tv and half of them started doing like you know doing research volunteering stuff like that i think that um like grassroots encouraging people like if you're out somewhere and you see someone's like oh i'm gonna watch tv it's like oh you know how about this cool thing in the park that's happening like i think like the pull in of people would be very useful as that that transition happens um but i do think i think that the thing that you're talking about i think it's happening right now i think Mm -hmm. there is like like i feel like we're in a transitionary period right now where people are looking more local I mean, even the United States, people keep saying that we're, we're like we're receding from um, being the policeman everywhere. I forget the term for it, but like mm. um, globalism is receding, I guess, is what people are saying. That's the term. Um, so I, I do feel like your point of people realize that there's no connection. They feel alone. They feel all these different things. I think now we're in a great I, I, my hope is that we're in a, a time of great experimentation where people will come back together. I think I think you're right about that. And I mean, I don't have TikTok. I have a twitter that i hardly use um yeah i have instagram because my sisters peer pressured me into it uh <laughs> i really only have i really only have facebook that i use a lot and that's because not only i mean my website has a page on there but also in my own private life i can't fathom or stand the idea of posting things that have no substance my uh my facebook posts like if it's not a paragraph it's not worth writing like i i kind of mostly because i know who's going to have that conversation with me like i know the friends that i have in life or online and we will just back and forth it's a conversation i want to have a conversation i don't i don't get a dopamine hit off of likes or reactions or you know whoever saw my stupid video of me you know just falling down the stairs that day like i i i can't do it um and i can't deal with that twitter had a character limitation that was that that's just why yeah that's why i couldn't do it i just i was never interested in it um and on facebook people will especially the people who have the addiction you're talking about they will delete posts that don't get as much of a audience as they expected. I don't care. You know, I, I posted it for me, not for someone else to love me. I'm, mm. I'm already content. Um, but I think also to answer your question about that, people will, or not answer it, but to drive it further that they were in a transition period. Um, I think it's going to be exacerbated more by geopolitical considerations as well. Um, 
in the in the presentation I was talking about that I gave uh, when I got my degree, uh, I had covered I had covered historical aspects of it because that's my passion. So I was like, this is the perfect opportunity to bring my my two things together, the two sides of my life. Um, and I started off with a historical foundation. I And you brought up Rome at the very beginning of this, but I will go even further back than that. I said, think about how things were done in the past. Everything was localized. Cities and towns literally rose up out of the ground because the building material that you needed, you didn't have semi-trucks. You didn't have you know ocean-going ships. If you needed something, it had to be like there or within walking distance. Like water had to be there. Food had to be there. Building material, it had to be right there. Um, in the Roman period, that was what I had said was the first transition into proto-industrialization and semi-globalization. You have glass from Syria finding its way all the way to Britain, maybe even into Scotland and Ireland. You have metal from Britain going to Rome. You have gold from Romania going to Morocco. You know, you have trees from Lebanon, like wood, building materials. You have all of these things like marble, granite. Everything went everywhere. So in Rome, you have a kind of mini version of globalization on the Mediterranean because before Rome, you have all these different peoples. You have the Celts, the Egyptians, you know, the Greek, the Greek empires that were that disintegrated after Alexander the Great passed away. Um, and you have all these other tribal communities elsewhere, uh, the Greek colonies around the Mediterranean. So they're all unified in Rome. And everything that they had done individually, they now do collectively. And so you have a, a massive transfer of not only knowledge and material, but also wealth and industry. Um, and that was a period that was in complete difference to what had gone before. And when the empire, the empire didn't really divide. Its administration divided. So it's a single imperium, the Roman imperium. You just have a Western and an Eastern half of it. The two emperors are not independent of each other. They govern the empire together. Um, when the Western empire fell and the German conquerors of Italy send the imperial diadem to Constantinople, where the empire now sits, um, again, it's for a time, they're living off of what? the empire had put there previously. Then when you get to the period where the empire is really in the past, like we're talking the turn of the millennium, uh, the, the first, the first millennium, so like a thousand AD, um, you know, a lot of this stuff for several centuries prior and even up to our own day, things rose up from the ground again, like before Rome had existed, you know, castles were, pretty much built in the center of quarries because the stone needed to be literally right there because you couldn't just ship it from elsewhere. So you have buildings rising out of the ground. You have cities and towns rising out of the ground. You know, they need to have local food. They need to have local water. They need to have everything localized again. Um, and I think that in a way we're dealing with a collapse of, you know, 
Pax Americana and and the last vestiges of a true global kind of uh, global trading order. There might be trade still. There was trade in the past, you know, independent states, they traded with each other before Rome, the states traded with each other. Um, but they had to not be dependent on those trade routes because they could not guarantee that the trade routes would remain open. Um, I think we're going to see a revival of localism again, not out of force, but out of necessity. You know, people will not be able to guarantee that we'll just be able to get cheap grain and cheap oil from elsewhere. We're going to have to either pump it here or we're going to have to do something else. Uh, on the, on the subject of oil, which is extremely controversial, especially from people who believe that, you know, we cannot have it anymore, electric, all that stuff. There's problems with going all electric because in, in our current setup, yeah, you're not producing the carbon directly. That's offset in a power plant somewhere else uh, that makes the energy. Um, but also contrast with people who believe that we could just pump continuously, like the center of the earth is just one creamy nougat full of endless energy that we can have forever. Um, and it's not. And I think that if if a moratorium on fossil fuels, let's say, is not implemented, eventually we're going to reach a period where we're just not going to have enough abundance for it to be profitable for the cost of it like the cost of getting it is gonna outweigh the price on the market so you're gonna have almost like a repeat of the 70s when during the carter administration when you know oil prices were through the roof and you know you had lines at the gas pump but it's gonna be worse than that because there's not gonna be you can't just say don't worry things will get things will get better the prices will go down because they'll never go down again. Because once you reach the critical limit of the amount of oil available and how much you can pump versus how much people need, we're not going to have fossil fuels anymore. A lot of our power plants and ways of doing things are not going to be viable anymore. Cars still run on gasoline. That's a petroleum byproduct. What are the cars going to use to run themselves? A lot of our power plants, a lot of our energy. I mean, you know, we still have we still have coal, but I don't think people are going to want to return to that. I, if if we don't come up with alternatives and localized alternatives for how to run our civilization, you know, renewable energies are not reliable enough because solar, yeah, you get power from the sun, but it's basically nuclear energy from afar because the sun is a giant nuclear power plant, but you're just getting the power far away and it's not direct there's not a direct tap route to the sun we don't just have a wire that runs from the sun to the earth so the conditions on the ground they need to be pristine for that to run at maximum efficiency um wind farms are not that efficient because they require a lot of space um I, birds will birds will run into them you know especially the more endangered species of birds so like the larger birds of prey that are already having having a rough time uh they're impacted greatly by these things and they're also because they're mechanical they're susceptible to fire 
and to into breakage. In fact, um, you know, a lot of people have already died in fires on on um, on wind turbines, the ones that we make, uh, especially in the Netherlands. I remember reading that you know one of the guys burned to death up there, and the other guy jumped because uh, they didn't he didn't want to be part of that, but he didn't really have a good time elsewhere. Um, so the renewables we have are not up to the task. The fossil fuels we produce are not going to be there forever. Uh, eventually, we're just going to be forced by hook or by crook. We're going to be forced to organize ourselves in a way. Things are going to have to be localized eventually because there's no, there's no recourse. There's no alternative to what we currently have. So elevators. What's more simple than an elevator? I mean, it runs on electricity, but what generates that electricity? You're not going to be able to build a, a 50 or 100 story building because nobody's going to lug their butt up all those stairs without an elevator. So, you know, buildings are going to be limited. Distances are going to be limited if the cars can't run on the gasoline that we currently have. Um, <clears throat> so there's a lot of things that I think we need to think about in terms of how we organize ourselves, how we run our lives. And I don't think that people think too much about the everyday when that's going to be some of the biggest limiting factors in the future. Hmm. So, <clears throat> so I think the it's like the, what, the early <clears throat> 1900s, someone did calculation that uh, New York City would be uninhabited because the amount of horses it would need to supply everyone in the in the city would have like mountains of you know shit everywhere, mm. and it, you you couldn't do it. And then you know the car was invented. I think I think that uh, I I love nuclear power. I like nuclear fission and uh, nu uh, nuclear in general. For and you also can retrofit a lot of the coal plants. People are working on this now. I'm a big fan of it. You mm. can because like the two thirds of the equipment's the same. It's just a giant like steam. You know, <clears throat> fundamentally. A nuclear power plant is really boring and it's the same as everything else like mm. a, a you know a coal fire plant it's just about making a you know fire centrally that moves a turbine nuclear is about radi uh making radiation that you know heats something up and moves the turbine like it's all really boring mm. um so i, I could I, I i believe that if, if we repli if we were more nuclear friendly which i think is lame that we're not and but there's a lot of people working on it including miss america for 2023 um big fan of her and her work on nuclear power um and then we we can make gasoline if we really need to from uh, from corn, and we can GMO that to be even better. And then um, and then I think having electric as well. So if you have nuclear power, and then you plug your car into the the wall, so it's electric or you know some type of hybrid. I don't I don't really see much that we can't really produce locally to continue going as we're going now. If not, you know up until the right and keep going. At the same time, the the population that we have is going down. Like our population, like the, the previous generations that I mentioned, like those are those are smaller. Like we're the greatest generation, uh, and so like that might necessitate it. But I think in terms of material, um, I, it sounds like it looks like we're going to be able to like engineer our way around it. Um, that's if we're smart. Like if we just keep going straight towards it. Yeah, we'll have mountains of horseshit everywhere. But we need mm -hmm. like a car in this case, a nuclear power, electrical, um, or corn and GMO to kind of like mm -hmm. offset those different things, which would be pretty cool. Because I, I love the idea of also. Um, the U.S. not using those resources, 
and then we can just sit on a mo- mountain of oil and it's there's a good backup but you know I, like we'll see in the next like 10 20 years which one of us is right it's probably a combination of both and i don't mm-hmm. think there's really right or wrong into it but i think it's an interesting conversation to have like what will the future hold the i've been thinking this whole time when i was reading your website when, I, when we have this conversation like how could the monarchist party like what would that look like like a benign sovereign and i think like the the framework that sits well for the uh for it to work is like i think some people make this comment like will ai kill all humans right will will mm-hmm. they like rise up and destroy us i think the ai will basically become like what you want the monarchy to be where uh and i'm drawing a parallel here but the i think ai will basically be that monarchist system that uh helps regulate a bunch of stuff really efficiently and we basically become like zoo animals well we don't realize it we're very happy zoo animals we're very mm-hmm. actualized zoo animals but we're not like how we are now where we're the kind of the complete masters of our fate i could see like ai you know popping up and i think if you look at as well like what are what is ai being like taught to care about and it's talked about like you know make us happy but i think that uh ai will eventually get to the point where it's not most likely going to kill us I think they will be maximizing their paperclip function to, uh, you know, for human actualization, essentially. And I think that's kind of like what you want monarchists to be. Like you want to be a decentralization, not, you know, uh, an elected figure and AIs can basically live forever. And they're mostly benign. I think that like, if I can operationalize the vision you have for the future, I don't see a person able to do it. I, I could see like AI doing it, which is kind mm. of personal if it's AGI. Well, in some ways I can see what you're, what you mean about, um, about being kind of benign, but in a way, not really, uh, Mm -hmm. machines are made to run with absolute efficiency, or at least that's what we hope they run at. Um, data is different from AI being made of data is completely different from mechanical machines. Um, so it's, limiting factors i do not think are very well understood just yet um it seems to only be limited by how much we already know and what we put into it and the critical mass that it will accumulate to be able to learn on its own um i think that taking the human away from it will make it cold um and that's why i i will push against your idea of having Mm -hmm. ai um as as the center uh because it's almost like the constitution of the united states you know that takes place of the king you know who vies for for the constitution like oh this party is going against the constitution it's the the old adage of the evil advisor you know it's not the king that's that's wrong it's his counselors it's the people who surround him that are giving him bad advice you know so but the constitution is a piece of paper it cannot speak with a voice of its own um, AI in that way will not only be speaking on its own, but it will look at how we do things and it will not understand the human side of it. And so it might make calculations that will have major disruptions for a lot of people. Like already people are losing industry. People are losing their jobs. People are losing their livelihoods. People are, you know, not not feeling heard and i can imagine that ai seeking to run with efficiency will only disrupt those local environments more whereas an actual personal monarch someone who is a human being who has feelings who gets ill 
who mourns death. Uh, you know, death and life and birth are extremely important to the system. The Windsors just had the funeral of their mother. You saw an extremely human side of King Charles when when Queen Elizabeth passed away. You saw the whole family get together and when her coffin was lowered in St. George's Chapel, you know, he almost he almost broke. Um, you can't get that with a machine. You can't get that with data. The, the emotion, the personal connection is extremely important and that can't be sacrificed because it has a value all its own. Its, its value is probably priceless, limitless, because the idea of putting yourself in someone else's shoes, you know, we've all lost a loved one. We've all experienced immense heartbreak and her late majesty is, is, you know, had a famous quote, or I don't even know if it was hers or if she just used it, but I know she'd said it, that grief is the price we pay for love. And I think a lot of people were caught off guard by the emotion that they felt. And it's not that they loved her because they knew her personally or that they ever met her. I had never met her and I was deeply affected by it. It's almost like similar to when JFK was assassinated and there were people wailing and crying, you know, in the streets and all that. You don't have to know them personally to be affected by it. Uh, you know, she was not only there forever, seemingly forever for the lifetime of many people. Um, but in order to have that reaction, you have to respect the individual, like love, affection, respect, you know, honor, a, a an admiration for the person and for everything they stand for and for what they do. Those factors are, are important to the system as well. And it's the reason why kings could have massive authority, but in the past, maybe not a whole lot of direct power. Like they couldn't just press a button and something's done. You know, they had to rely on their loyal lieutenants to do it. And, you know, respect is important because if they were not respected, if they were seen as, you know, someone that was not deserving of it, then that's when a king just didn't have authority, you know, when they witnessed so much opposition. So it's not that it's not that they that you can just substitute the system for for something efficient. Like reading through my website, it might seem like I just loathe the lack of efficiency and the lack of correct viewpoints of these things, or at least from my point of view. Uh, and that would be a decent understanding of it, but it's not the total understanding because you have to have that personal connection. Without a personal connection, a monarchy is nothing more than just a, you know, a cold bureaucrat. And there's a, a figure I mentioned in on my website and i i use some of his videos and i also uh, promoted some of his books um eric von knelt ladine uh you might have seen his name pop up and he said that you know the rule by experts is one of the most dangerous because they're going to rule us in cold blood because they're they know how things run so efficiently that they will end up making decisions that harm whole swaths of the population in the process. But so long as efficiency is there, 
then those people don't necessarily need to be concerned. Um, and so that's in, in the old days, he said that, that who's going to control the experts. The king was there to control the experts. The king had access to all the experts. His advisors were mostly experts, you know, government officials, people who had been there maybe even before he was born, but he has a superior position. So he has access to all of their knowledge and to all of their expertise, and to all of their wisdom, but he can decide the proper course because he'll, they, they might say, well, we have we have all of these resources here but there's a there's a couple villages in the way i mean they're not really doing too much uh i think we should i think we should maybe think about kind of moving them away or maybe trying to have access to that and he might say well i don't think that's a good idea because they are they're the heart of the population in this province and if we move them out we're going to get a rebellion on our hands or now my, my, my cousin has lands out there and he's very close to these people. I'm not, I'm not about to touch him. So there's a, there's a different viewpoint, whereas an elected official might just say, well, I have no personal connection to this place. So sure. Move them out, rip it up. It's, it's different. There's a, there's a different way of seeing it. And, Noblesse oblige is very much a, a part of that. I, I even listed that in, on my homepage. It's the idea that those of great wealth, great power, great have a great responsibility. You know, with power comes great responsibility, but that, that idea goes a long, long way back. And it's founded in religious tradition and mostly the, the Christian tradition, the Western tradition that you are given this authority but you can't just use it in a in a cruel way uh you know you, you should you should look out for the less fortunate i mean did you did you see any of the coronation if i might ask you that question at all uh i saw not the coronation i saw the maybe like a like a two-second thing of it i was more i more saw the procession with uh mm. queen elizabeth mm. well at the at the king's coronation um they they enter the abbey and he comes in last uh you know even his wife comes first um but then on the way out he processes out first um but at the beginning you know in uh i believe i don't know if it was a page boy or if it was um someone associated with the abbey but it says your majesty eh, we welcome you in the name of the king of kings and the king replies in his name and after his example i come here this day not to be served but to serve and when he's vested robed and enthroned the vestments that he wears are priestly vestments you know they are you you might even have seen you know priests and bishops um wear them in the past when they're invested in that you know with this sword you know you will protect widows and orphans you know may those who see this this day with you holding this sword see it as a sign not of um not of judgment but of justice not of might but of mercy um and you will restore those that have gone into into disorder and array you will maintain the things that are restored you will punish iniquity um 
inequality, you know, iniquity. That is literally in the thing. This coronation service, it is words, it is symbols that go back even before England was a thing or to the very beginning of it. It goes back to the ninth century. This is the exact coronation all the way through because the British have maintained a medieval or even, you know, pre-medieval, you know, high middle ages from the big turn of the first millennium, they've maintained a coronation service and that that coronation service is founded in the faith. You know, it's, it's extremely important. The idea that you are, your power is not your own. You are the vice regent of, of God on earth. Um, very much in the mold of Jesus. I mean, a lot of people, I was raised Catholic. I have since wandered from the faith. I wouldn't call myself a Catholic anymore. So if anybody thinks that I'm promoting Christianity or I'm not, but I'm trying to make a point that is extremely important to this. Um, in a post-religious society, it might be hard for people to understand, but people in the past took these things extremely seriously because it was real to them. You know, maybe it still is to this day. I'm not going to make any claims. Um, I'm not an atheist. I'm not an agnostic. But to them, it was extremely palpable because it meant something. You know, you wash the feet of of the of the homeless and the destitute. Maundy Thursday, they the kings will actively, with their own hands, wash the feet of of destitute people. Um, or at least they did in the old days, uh, you know, touching for the king's evil. It was seen that the royal hand could cure illness because the king was anointed. You know, he had, he had divine power coming into him because he himself had the eighth sacrament of coronation. He had semi-priestly power. You know, he could mediate God's favor onto, onto people. Um, that that is like something that we don't have today it's a it's a sacred vocation it's a calling it's something you're called to the last the last example of it before king charles would have been uh blessed charles of austria uh the the last austro-hungarian emperor uh franz joseph dies in the middle of world war 1 and he has a he has a sacred uh coronation he is anointed and he is crowned with the crown of St. Stephen, um, a crown that was given to Hungary by the popes um, at, the turn of, at the turn of the first millennium AD. Um, the, not only the span of time, but the weight of family tradition, the weight of historical tradition, religious tradition. You know, we've just always done this. It's so important. Um, it, it means a great deal. And it has even if you don't think it has a, like there's anything real to the faith, think of the psychological impact on somebody who does believe it. They're in that chair. They're facing the altar. They have physical weight pressing down on their head and on their hands, on their shoulders. They're physically encumbered. A king might look glorious on his throne. If someone wanted to rush him, could he stop them? You have all this stuff weighing you down. You're clunky right now because it's not about just looking good. It's if it's a physical symbol and a symbol visually, it, it has so much importance. And on people who believe it and genuinely feel that they have a duty 
that they have a purpose. This is their purpose. God taught that all men are created equally. You know, God makes man and woman. You know, in life, we do not have equal station. We're not all equally blessed. But it's not the physical attributes that matter. It's your soul. It's the, it's the things you can't see. Because when you die, a king is going to be weighed in the scales just as a beggar on the street you might have passed by. And God might say to him, you passed him by. Why didn't you throw him some food or give him some coins or give him some clothes? Why didn't you let him you know, join you or have him spend the night somewhere on your, on your coin? That stuff, they think it's going to affect them. And that psychologically would mean a great deal. It would be something that you can't, you can't see the world without it. So <laughs> sorry for that rant or that ramble, but I, I just can't stress that enough because that, that is an, a, a measure of how I formulate not only these ideas and these systems, but also I think it's important for people in, in our modern times to, to consider because it can't be seen without it. Yeah, the I was I was I've been reading through and watching. I read it and then I watch, uh, which I guess technically you should do it the other way. Uh, Shakespeare, you're meant to watch Shakespeare, so I, I think that reading is probably stupid first. But uh, I haven't read all of them, so maybe I'll do. Anyways, but I got off on a side there. But in uh, Hamlet, there's a scene where uh, Hamlet's talking to Gertrude and Claudius, and basically he, you know, Hamlet's been like kind of peeved. That uh, the, he's like, am I the only one who's sad that my dad just died? Like, you're you're getting married to that guy, you know? Like, can you at least pretend to be sad? And so he gets pissed off, and he's like, hey, are you guys? Uh, are you guys just have like, do you do you carry just the mere trappings of woe? You know, or do you just are you just pretending? And um, and sometimes I wonder, uh, like with religion and stuff like that, um, if you just pretended to believe and like did some of the practices. Like what would be the benefit of it? I've been reading uh, the Quran, and uh, you know, is, you know, obviously Islam as well uh, because of it. And they they pray five times a day. And mm -hmm. what the the prayers are, I, I've been wondering this. Like, why would you want to pray to God five times a day? No offense to people mm -hmm. out there, it's just like that was my I was wondering. Why would you want to pray to God five times a day? And so I asked uh, a Muslim friend of mine, like, why would you do this? And and, they, and he explained to me that the prayer isn't for God; it's for you. Like during mm -hmm. those like ten minutes, 10, 15 minutes, they're basically meditating. On their place in the universe it was like oh wow so like if i were to meditate five times a day how would i feel mm. and it's like i probably feel pretty good pretty like connected to the world very grounded and so i just i wonder to some extent like if you like this a bit divested i think it's better to like feel you know if you're praying or whatever but i just yeah. wonder if you just had the mere trappings of being kind to people because you just want to be kind or whatever like if you just took if you distilled religion down to the practices and you lived them how happy would you be you know, you know, I, I wonder this all the time. Um, and maybe I, uh, referencing Hamlet was not necessary, but like, but I literally was just thinking about this the other day. It's like, there's so much benefit from these things. Yes, there's bad. There's stuff that are heinously happening, but uh, like just in the, like the idea of prayer being for the person and not for like, mm. uh, the exalting of something was it's just a very interesting idea in and of itself. Um, which I think is also like a bit of an echo of your point as well that these things are really important and, and affect people, and if um. And I think the meditation aspect of it, just imagine meditating 10 minutes, 10 minutes each time, five times a day. Like, how would you feel doing that for a week, for a lifetime? Yeah. That'd be nuts. Like, how, yeah. 
you know, because that's a, everyone says, like even NBA players, they'll meditate right before going back into the game because it really helps them get where they need to be going. Yeah, and <clears throat> so of course that would have a major impact on on us and our personal lives. If you put yourself in the position of some like when we're born, all like all of us just in our normal lives in the United States, I mean. Our lives are blank canvas, really, if you think about it. I mean, we choose in a large, to a large extent, you know, greater or lesser degree, what kind of job we want. Where do we want to go to college? Do we want to go to college? Do I want to do this? Do I want to do that? Like, we have options. When you're born into a family like that, when you're born into a royal family, your, your destiny is set from the moment your parents conceive you. Um, maybe not all of the family there, there's a wiggle room there, depending on how close you are to the throne. Um, but you know, you more, more often than not, you're, you're set in stone. You have a job. You already have a job from the moment you're born, you sign that contract. Like, even if you don't actively do that. So they don't have lives that are free. We have lives that we can we can kind of choose what direction to go. They, I mean, yeah, Harry left, but Harry left with his wife, and the bridges are burned now. Um, even the extended family, you know, members of the of the Greek royal family, you know, because the the Windsors, it's the Windsors is kind of a misnomer. Uh, the House of Windsor was from George V during the First World War. They changed the name. As soon as Elizabeth took over, she married Prince Philip. Prince Philip of, what is it? Oh. Holstein, Guthorp, Sonderberg, Glucksburg, I believe is, the, is his dynastic name. So we currently have a change of dynasty. Char Charles III of the House of Windsor, yes, from a, you know, a purely cosmetic standpoint. But he has Greek royal relatives. Danish royal relatives. I mean, the royal families of Europe are as international globalist, if you want to say, use the modern term as it gets. You know, they don't necessarily belong to any ethnic group. You know, you might have a queen of Denmark, but she is not just Danish. You know, she has that they, they all have, you know, they're all related to each other. And the um, Harry, when he left, and after all the things that happened, the wider family, you know, had a reaction to it. Most people will just see what the British press says and see what the people in the UK think. But he also has an extended familial connection too, and they had their own viewpoints about it. Um, the so in a way, yeah, if you're in that position, you can free yourself, but he's not really that free and if he is free he's going to taste what freedom tastes like because from from the time he was born until now he's had everything handled for him is it everything taken care of he didn't have to worry about money he didn't have to worry about food he didn't have to worry about where he was going to live now he has to and that's that might be a rude awakening for him i mean i haven't heard what he's doing so, thus far but i mean i'm not really keeping an eye on him people People like, like his father, people like, because you were talking about 
reading the Quran and how Muslims will pray five times a day. Um, I know that the, the Habsburgs, they went to mass every day. I know that Louis the 14th, probably the greatest King of France, the most famous, at least, um, maybe not the greatest, but at least the most famous, he went to mass in Versailles every day. I mean, people look at Versailles and they're like, God, look at, look at all this waste. Look at all this ostentatious wealth. I mean, when you're in the chapel, it looks beautiful. Of course. I mean, why wouldn't it be beautiful? But if you look a little bit closer on in the stone carved into the stone are the stations of the cross, you know, the Christ's passion, his, his crucifixion, his death and his resurrection right at the altar. You'll see, you know, a, um, a gilded, uh, a gilded, I think it's bronze maybe of, uh, Mary at the foot of the cross, holding her son and crying and, and weeping, um, up on the ceiling, you'll see that he is then resurrected. And then in the middle, you have uh, God the Father. So you have God the Son ripping the universe apart with his, with his resurrection. You have God the Father up above at the royal balcony where the king would stand during Mass. You have the dove. So the Holy Spirit descends to the balcony because it's a, it's a replay of his purpose, of his of his coronation, of his job um, every single day. And it's a visible reminder every single time he enters that chapel. A lot, a lot of people today kind of, you know, view religion sourly uh, in a way. I mean, and there's a lot of reasons for that, which will be a whole discussion on itself. We're not going to jump down that rabbit hole. But um, if you think about it, Christianity is a strange justification for the government of kings. Um, Jesus had, you know, was heir to the claim of David, if you're, if you're to believe the gospels, but think about what it means because to be crucified, I mean, so many people just look at his crucifixion. That punishment was only inflicted on, on slaves on rebellious slaves. So you have you have God putting himself in human form and living with all the troubles of human life and he's murdered as a slave. That that is an extremely powerful thing to kind of contemplate on. The fact that the most powerful being in the universe would lower himself below even like the lowest of the low, like a subhuman, someone who could, who was not even seen as worth anyone's time, just nail them to a piece of wood and move on. In a way, having, having one of the most powerful people in your life, you know, a king or an emperor, see that as their model, as someone to emulate, someone to, to be, pious like to constantly humble yourself every day there's a there's a story um henry the second of of england he um he had a, an archbishop of canterbury that he appointed as he was his, he was his friend um he raised him up from nothing and he appointed him archbishop of canterbury and after he did that 
he had troubles with him ever since. And one day he was, because at this point, uh, the kings of England had vast dynastic possessions in France. This is before the Hundred Years' War. So the Hundred Years' War was fought as a claim war on all those lands that the kings of France had confiscated. Uh, Henry is in is in France, and he hears what Becket is doing in England, and he just goes into a violent rage, and he says, will no one rid me of this turbulent priest? Four knights take the king at his word, go to England. They murder Becket in cold blood in his cathedral. Um, there is a massive rebellion as a result, and even members of Henry's family write to the Pope and say, excommunicate him you know get get a coalition because he just he just murdered you know a bishop in one of the holiest cathedrals in in england henry either if you want to believe it's just a pragmatic decision or if he actually had conviction it doesn't matter the result is the same henry goes to england and he walks barefoot in nothing but just a hair shirt to to canterbury to his shrine submits to a public flogging by all of the clergy the bishops the priests the abbots and the monks of canterbury they all take turns wailing on him and then he lays down prostrate in front of becket's tomb in front of his shrine all night and all day just lays on the cold stone the, re the rebellion is over very shortly thereafter i mean after everybody gets word that that's what he did, you know, they realized, oh my God, you know, well, at least he paid penance. Maybe he didn't mean it, you know, it, it dissolves. But whether that was a pragmatic decision on Henry's part or an actual religious conviction, I mean, it's hard for me to believe that someone would make a pragmatic choice of walking barefoot on dirt, stone, sharp rock roads, probably getting cut up on your feet, dressed in nothing but a hair shirt, laying on a cold floor for all night and being beaten? I don't know. Even if even people back then, I mean, yeah, they were probably pretty rugged and pretty tough having to deal with a lot of situations, but I can't believe that that was just a pragmatic choice. So I, I, don't, I, I don't think anyone would believe that anyone who governs us today if they made a real crap decision and it affected a lot of people that they would submit themselves to a punishment like that because that that's not something that you would think like imagine if if donald trump sent a nuke somewhere and i'm only using him as an example because i mean he he was a loose cannon you know nobody knew what he was gonna do from day to day not even our allies so imagine if he pushed the button and sent a nuke somewhere and it maybe it didn't start a war but like do you really think that he would submit himself to something like that do you think that the current president would or any president before him even george washington do you think if they made if if they made a, an error like that or if something horrible was done in their name so they're responsible for it do you think any of them would submit to something like that I, I can't I can't see it happening. Hmm. So that 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 informs my view of these things. I mean, always I'm always thinking about situations like that. Yeah. 
I think it'd be interesting if you were to write a book. I was just thinking that as you have like so many different stories that kind of come together, it'd be really cool to have like a the monarchist papers or something from like your point of view. Is there any thought about doing something like that? I've considered writing writing a book. Um, my my problem is I wouldn't know what to say, and maybe at some point I have too much to say. So it's like I could see myself writing a book, but it, what would be the point of it? Like, what would be its direction and what would be its flow? I'm terrible at writing. I'm great at speaking, but like I almost feel like I would need to have somebody like take like write dictation. Like it would almost be like something a book that's similar to the flow of our conversation like it would just be me and somebody's writing down what i say and maybe i form a book from that but mm-hmm. who knows maybe maybe one day i'll write something it's the uh one of my favorite podcasters mike duncan who does the history of rome podcast and revolutions which fantastic if anyone's looking for anything in it. you know civil wars you know you name it he, he gets into him he, he basically took that content and then made them into books so that might be fun oh too. oh yeah, yeah that is pretty cool yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, if you have a busy day job and what have you, but you know, adding more stuff to your plate. The so I know we're, I know we're, we're going over time, so I want to be respectful of. Oh, your I'm day. so sorry. Uh, that. No, no, no. This is more like you know we're all uh, he. Uh, you guys don't know this because it'll be in the future for people listening. But this is his. Uh, this is Austin Saturday, so he's like he's very accommodating to coming on the show today. So I just want to be. Uh, so I have a couple of rapid fire questions, um, and then uh, we we can wrap up. So the when were you happiest in life? I don't know. I feel like I feel like I'm pretty happy now. Um, mm, you know, that's I, have, good. I, I have great friends. I have a great life. I have a great family. I've been uniquely blessed. Um, I don't think I could see my life without any of those people. So I'd say probably when I'm most happy is when I'm with the people I love and care about. Yeah, well, th- that's fantastic. The You're the first person I've asked that. I'll tell you now, you know, you don't have to even like watch, you know, 100 episodes from now. You're the first person to say now. That's which is really great that, you know, uh, the present moment, usually it's like uh, a lot of them have been like, well, I was seven years old and I discovered Pokemon, um, <laughs> but the I like yours. Uh, very good. Um, so on your website, you mentioned a, a bunch of books that people can recommend. The website mm-hmm. uh, will be in the show notes for everyone listening. But are there any modern? Oh, you, you mentioned one in the, uh, today, but are there any other modern authors and thought leaders that you follow that you'd recommend? Uh, yeah, um, I mean, I would. I would say he's a good friend of mine. He's more of an acquaintance because I've never met him in person. But um, Charles Cologne, uh, he is a he's a really good writer. He's a he's a monarchist writer. He wrote a book about Blessed Charles of Austria. He also wrote um, Puritans of Empire, uh, a Catholic perspective of the history of America. Um, mm, and yeah, and he also wrote Star Spangled Crown. So I'll plug that book. Uh, that is his uh, his book about how to imagine a monarchy in the united states honestly if anyone listening to this had any kind of desire to imagine what a future monarchy of the united states would be star spangled crown is a really good resource for that um i would recommend charles Coulomb 100 percent. he's a he's a great individual really kind man yeah i'm gonna check out that book after this and uh um it'll be it'll be on like a I'll tell people if I like it, but um, maybe I'll have him on, and then we can we debate it. But oh, then, I, would, uh, I would, I would definitely say have him on. He uh, he gives a lot of a lot of interviews, so you definitely will probably be able to get him on. Sweet. Uh, and then, uh, what is uh, uh, what is your favorite founding father? 
this is a we had a huge thing about like talking about the history of America. Uh, we'll have to have a part two just to get on this. But yeah, just a little. What's your favorite uh, founding father? Oh. Even though I even though I feature Hamilton a lot on my website, it's probably going to be John Adams because uh, Adams being Adams being a lawyer, being slightly more. I don't think pragmatic is the right word. Not even maybe informed. I don't know. He just had a, a view of this stuff. Um, and his his perspectives and what he talked about would be really, really useful for anybody interested in this stuff today. Like he called Britain a republic. And he said, just because the king's hereditary and he has a lot of power doesn't make it any less a republic. It just means that the country is governed by laws and not the whims of a person. That's a good definition for me. You know, a lot of people define republics in different ways, but, you know, if a republic can mean you can have a hereditary head of state and it's just that, you know, we have laws and we're a civilized society, you know, and I'm not just, you know, being dictated to by just some crazy person, I'm fine with that. And then the last question is a uh, meta one. Um, is there a question or topic that you wish we could have got to today? And maybe someone listening in uh, can, like, I don't know, can reach out. I don't know, someone in the comment section could like, you know, give their thought on this as well. Well, that was mostly my fault. I definitely kind of rambled on a lot of stuff. I went on so many tangents and you have my, in my deepest apologies for that. But I think probably um, not only, like you said, about America's founding fathers and all that, but I think a, maybe a clearer plan or setup, the idea I have in my head of how uh, a royalist America would operate, how it would look, how this stuff would be implemented at all. Um, I would definitely, if you're interested in a part two, I would love to cover that stuff with you. Yeah, uh, I think we're. Uh, I think we'll do a part two because uh, I definitely want to get into it. Um, well, then, uh, Austin, I want to uh, say thank you for coming on the show today. Um, this is a really. I one thing that I loved, and I'll just you know say for everyone listening as well. One thing I love is that there was. It's like we have the same data, but and we can come to different conclusions, but we're able to talk about it, and that's such a uh, a novel concept in modern, you know, uh, parlance. Like people don't just sit down and be like, "Oh, I think this." Well, I'll push back on this. I, I really enjoyed this conversation today with you. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it too, and I agree. I think a lot more of that is needed, where people talk, but they don't need to take it personally.